Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 270. We are in the beginning of the three-week period called Ben Amtsarim, between the dire straits, dire straits, I should say, of Shivasar Batamuz, the 17th of Tamuz, and Tishabov. The saddest period in the Hebrew calendar, the time when both in the first temple and the second temple, the walls were breached of Jerusalem, and then ultimately the space Amidrash itself was destroyed on Tishabov. So we commemorated through avoiding and refraining from certain celebrations, from extra luxuries, and so on. But as the Rebbe points out, and it's one of the fundamental, you can say, chidushim even, that the Rebbe introduced, of course, based on the approach of Chassidus, and Teda to all negative things, that in the words of the of the Navi of the Prophet, that these days should be transformed, not just eliminated, but transformed to holidays and celebrate celebrations. Because within every Yerida, within every descent, lies great potent power. So though ostensibly on the outside surface level, this is a sad period in time. Yet, it carries in it the potential for the birthing of the third base Amigdash and the coming of Mashiach and the Geula. So how do we precipitate that? By accessing that inner light, by doing things according to halacha that make that, we're allowed to do, that add joy in halacha dikaway, like the language expression from the Mincha Salazar, the Mukat Sharebbe, and the words which were leading to Rosh Chedesh of the end of this week, says, of As of enters, we diminish, decrease in joy. So he teaches, of we diminish of and all its negative and ill effects through joy, through permissible joy. The learning of Hilchas Beisabchira. The learning of Teira, as we say at the end of the Haftera of Shabbos Chazain. Mishpat is Teira, specifically Mishnah and Halacha. And specifically in Teira itself, the, the parts of Teira that address the rebuilding of the Beis Amigdash, whether it's in the book of Yecheskel that talks about the measurements of the third Beis Amigdash, or Midas in Gemara, the Mishnah that taught the Mishnahis that talks about the measurements of the Beis Amigdash, and the Rambam Hilchus Beis Abchid and Halacha, the laws of building the Beis Amigdash. As the Medrash says, Yecheskel, when he, when he asked Hashem, what will be when after the Beis Amigdash is destroyed, Hashem says, learn, by learning it, we're considered as if we're rebuilding it. And the second half is through Tzedakah, through charity, Shavar B'Tzedakah, charity, adding, increasing in Tzedakah, and, and which, which Tzedakah in general diminishes and counters all negative things, especially things connected to death and to Golas. And of course, specifically, the second base of Midas, which was destroyed due to baseless sinas chinam, baseless hatred, Tzedakah and Avis Yisrael in general counter that by increasing in baseless love, in unconditional love to each one. And these are the ways we introduce and we, we reveal in the, within the negative power and energy of this period in time, it's positivity. And by doing so, we ultimately will prevail and it will be transformed into most powerful days 
the Gula Mitis Vashlema. So this is a lesson, obviously, about this period in time, but it's a lesson in general to this applied to life of how we approach negative things. Everybody's got their three weeks, their nine days, in their own personal lives. And Islam, we should not know of any negative things, but people go through situations, whether it's losses, trauma, personal situations, fears, inhibitions, whatever it is that is our metzodim, the things that constrict us, that limit us, that, that we feel trapped in. And the way to see that as being an ability, from the metzar, from the constrictions, we allow ourselves to create because we cry out with greater, with greater power and with greater uh, passion when we're in a place that we feel stuck. So it's never about being stuck or never being in a situation that's hopeless, but on the contrary, using it as a catalyst and a springboard to achieve much greater heights. Which is why Tuba'ov, which comes after Tishabov, is the greatest, one of the greatest holidays. As that Izal explains, because after Tishabov, after such a great descent, revealing the full moon, which we'll talk about when we come then, after such a diminishment of the moon and the dignity of Malchus, of uh, the Jewish people in general, and the, uh, the Jewish people specifically in the world in general, that brings even a greater Yom Tov, because there's always in every dark black hole lies a tremendous amount of energy that needs to be tapped into and accessed, which means in each one of us lies reservoirs, reservoirs of strengths that... Oh, that often cannot be, that do not emerge until we're pressured. So no one should have undue pressure, but everyone goes through their nine days and their three weeks. So we're talking now in a period, as I said, we're close to the end of the month of Tammuz. This Friday will be Rosh Chedesh Of, which begins within the three-week period itself, the nine days, which concludes with Tisha B'Av, the ninth day. By then we should already have the Gul, and Tisha B'Av will be the greatest holiday of all, as the Medrash says. So... But nevertheless, we prepare as the Rebbe's emphasis on the positivity that we're capable of doing during this period of time. Obviously, in halacha kwein, a way, that goes without saying, but the focus is on the positive, while maintaining all the laws that are necessary to be maintained. And that's part of the paradox, and that's part of the way we deal with challenges and with darkness. Within the three weeks, the nine days themselves, so there's the chassidus, the why is it nine days and not 10 days, not 11 days? So immediately is reminiscent of the famous statement in the Sefer Yitzira, but Esser Svidus, that there's 10 Svidus, Blima, without substance, Esser Veleitesha, Esser Veleyachadaset, 10 and not 9, 10 and not 11. Because 10 is the complete picture. What's missing when you have the nine days? What's missing is Malchus. As I mentioned, the Levona. The Jewish people are compared to the moon and they count by the moon and we sanctify the moon. The moon represents Malchus, less Lomigar Malklum, it has no light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. It basically it embodies the concept of Bittl. And, this, and the moon, therefore, has, is vulnerable. It's vulnerable. The Pagam Halavana, as the expression goes, the wound of the moon as it was diminished in the beginning of creation when it complained. So on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the, of, the, of the month of Av, and the nine days reflect that diminishment. Ten but not nine. So it's a nine, the Malchus is concealed, and Malchus is wounded, and Malchus is injured. And it's our job to rebuild it. And we rebuild it by 
demonstrating the dignity of human beings. What is sinas chinam? Why should that be the cause for the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash? So the basic reason is because barcheno avinu kolano keechad, meaning God blesses us when we're one. Our Father blesses us when a father sees children united. It's a keli, a container, a channel for blessings. As the end of the Shas concludes, the God did not find a keli that can contain can bracha. Shalom is the ultimate container for bracha because Shalom creates harmony within diversity and allows people from all walks of life feeling a, a, a balanced and a harmonious relationship. What is the opposite of that? Sinas chinam. So therefore, when there's an element of sinas chinam, it doesn't allow the bracha to, to reside. So how could the Ebesh of Shachanti B'Seichem reside in a temple on this earth when his children are not united? Shachanti B'Seichem among them, and they're not connected, united, God forbid. But a deeper level, when a person dislikes, God forbid, or hates another person, it's, a injure of, it's an injury, it's an attack, an assault on that person's dignity. The, the dignity that each of us was created in the divine image and therefore deserves for no other reason than just created. Eivis Abrius, as Aaron says, Aaron whose birthday is on Rishchei which I'll mention in a moment. be from the students of Aaron, Eivis Abrius, as the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, chapter 32, Brius. Why is it called Brias? Creatures love the creatures. Because even if they can't find another quality in a person, except that they're just the mere fact they're a creature of God, is enough reason. Lech l'uman shasani, to the God that created this creature. And when a person takes that away from someone, that is an attack on the dignity, on the malchus of an individual, on the value, on the indispensable divine value of that individual. So when you do that, that is, of course, the attack on, on the tenth sphere. So you have nine, not ten, not the complete ten. When we repair that through our unconditional love for each other by recognizing and celebrating the dignity of every person you meet, the dignity of all people, whether it's friends or strangers or family, you are essentially rebuilding malchus. You're rebuilding dignity. You're rebuilding and completing the tenth, which corrects the, the rupture that happened in those spheres with a wound of malchus, wound of dignity. So that's one of the lessons, or some of the lessons that we take out from this period in time. As I said, we are now, we benched yesterday, we benched um, the month of Menachemov. We bench it, it's a blessing. It's called Menachemov. What's Menachemov? Of represents the negative part of Of, and Menachemov, consoling Of. Again, like the revealing and consoling and rebuilding and repairing and healing the negative aspects of Of. The Shalos says Of is Rosh Hashanah's Edein Bovel. Referring to the two Beis Amidus destroyed by Edom, by Rome, the Malchus Edom, the second temple, and Beis is Bovel, the first temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Bovel. So we correct of Menachemov, we console it and heal it and um, elevate it through this work that we are talking about, whether it's the love, Tzdoke, Teda, and all the other positive things that we do in this period of time in an increased fashion. Now, of course, Magdim Raful Lamako, the Ebershta, always sends a healing before the illness. So, who is the birthday of Rishchedesh of the beginning of the nine days? Aaron Hakayim. What was Aaron significant about? Have a of Shaladin, as Hillel says. Eiv Sabrius, Umakarvan Lutayah. Eiv Shalom, Vereid of Shalom. Love, peace, and pursue peace. 
Eves Abrias love even the creatures of Makarvan and bring them close to Tera. So Aaron, who embodied and personified love, that's why when he passed away, it says that all the Jews cried for him. It doesn't just say Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. It says all of them. Because he was among them, a person among them who made peace between husband and wife. And therefore everyone felt that vacuum, that void. So what better way to begin the nine days than have a symbol? a personification that captures the message of Avis Yisrael, which is the refuah, the healing that corrects the, the rupture and the breach as a result of the opposite of loving one another. And the fifth of all, which we'll talk about next week, briefly, the Arizal's yard site, the Arizal too created the tremendous unity among all Jews of all walks of life. As did the Rajbi, whose yard site, of course, is in the days of Srira, as I pointed out a number of times, Rajbi and Arizal and Arnakain, all in the negative days of the year, days when we don't celebrate and we don't make weddings, because their role was to counter the forces that created the Nogu Kovid Zebazeh, the lack of honor of one another of the students of Rabbi Akiva, which was the cause of the epidemic that happened in the days of counting of the Omer, Sphira, and as the Sinas Chinam that caused the Beis Amigdash during the nine days. So the counter force are these, four, are these individuals who represented and epitomized what love is and unity between all parts of the Torah and between all people of all walks of life without any distinction. So the lesson is very clear to us. It's a great opportunity now, an excellent opportunity, should you have a, have a quarrel with anyone or you have any grudge, now is the time to correct it and maybe swallow pride. And even if you feel that you're right, to go ahead and call up a person or sit down with them and try to correct something. I remember, every time we correct even a small disagreement, definitely a large one, it ripples through the entire Seder Ishtasus, through the entire cosmic order, and creates unity throughout and brings bracha shalom, even in a physical and a very practical way. The Rebbe said a number of times, if we had shalom, there would be shalom and peace, we already would have the gu'ula here. So, with that, let us move into, uh, it's also Pashas Matis Masse, so let me just say one thing about Matis Masse, though we have spoken about this a number of times, and I'll give the references in a moment. Matis Masse brings together two chapters, and this is when the, this year, in this Shonimu uh, Beres, in this leap year, where Israel and, and the outside of Israel were not consistent to the, the, the Pashas because of the scheduling and because of the leap year, um, so now in Matas Masse, we finally join together again. So it's also significant of unity between the Bnei the people living in Israel and the people outside of Israel. Matas Masse is another form of unity. Matis means hard. When you say Matis, you say Mata. Mata is a staff, but not like a shavit. The shavit is like still soft and moist. And a mat is when, the, when a staff, that, a walking stick, for example, that becomes hardened which refers to in the Shvatim as well, they have the Shvevet, the, the tribes are sometimes called Shvatim, sometimes Matis. Here they're called Matis, so it consists of inflexibility, or you can say firmness, unwavering steadfastness. Masse, on the other hand, is journey, traveling, which is the exact opposite, flexibility, referring, of course, to the journeys of the Eden through the Midbar, and the journeys that all of us go through our entire lives, as the Baal Shem Tov says, all of us go through 42 journeys in our lifetime, and the Tzemach Sadiq adds 42 journeys even daily. 
I once did an entire series of, uh, of uh, essays on these 42 journeys. If you'd like to receive them, please send us an email or just go to the forum at chassidahsupply.com. Go to the forum and include your email address in it because it's anonymous. I said, please send, us the four, please send me the 42 journeys and we'll send it to you. A practical, psychological, and personal application of these 42 journeys. So, of course, apropos to our time, when part of the journeys include, of course, the journeys of Golos, the journeys of we were exiled and displaced from our home, Israel, and the journey of Golos throughout all the, na- the countries and empires and nations that we've traveled through. So, fitting to this time of the year, as the Shalosh says that the Parshas are connected to the events that happened, even though the events may have happened later, but the Torah precedes existence. It's the blueprint for, for existence. So, Matis and Mase both indicate two elements that are necessary in understanding these three, three weeks, this period in time. One is that there has to be a certain steadfastness, even though we go through these journeys, but we also have to have that flexibility of knowing that every journey brings us to another place and ultimately leads us to the Eretz Yisrael, to the Promised Land, the Gula Amitiz Vashlem. And though they seem to be two different tenuas, two different type of movements, but in truth, both are necessary in life where you have to have certain things, that certain axioms and fundamentals that remain always like strong, strong pillars that are unshakable and unwavering. But to only have that without any flexibility for growth is also not enough. We also have to have the ability to expand and be flexible and mobility and movement. And we bring them both together. Similar to the combination of, of Ashonim Ubedas, like this year, leap year, where you have the combination of the lunar cycle. Lunar is always changing the lunar cycle. And the solar movement, which is consistent. The sun is a consistent force. This year emphasizes that we reconcile these two cycles so there shouldn't be a discrepancy between them. Okay, now, cross-referencing. So Chassidus applied to the three weeks, nine days, Amatis Mase, in episodes 28, 74 through 76, 125 and 126, 170, 172, 219 through 221. I know that's a mouthful, but that reflects the archives that we have of all previous episodes. So if you're new to this program or you're not new, uh, our website, which is relatively new, Chassidus Applied, we created a designated website just for Chassidus Applied resources, including these programs. So you'll find there all the archives. They are tagged, so you can search by subject, by topic. Each program itself is time-stamped in the YouTube version of the laptop or desktop version of these programs. And you'll find there also the forum I mentioned, where you can submit an anonymous question, completely anonymous, and please take advantage of it. That's what this program is for. So I thank you all for having written your questions and your comments and your comments on previous programs and your critique. All much appreciated. It's a partnership, and hopefully we continue to grow together and trying to apply this to the challenges of our personal lives and to all issues of our lives. Okay, there you'll also find the essays in the previous year's essay contest, including this year's as well as other resources of Chassidus applied resources that can help you in your life and taking Chassidus and applying it to life's condition and situation, human condition and life situation. Okay, with that, let us move on. We have plenty of material to cover, including a big follow-up to part two of the vaccine controversy, so that will be coming shortly. So let me just cover a few other things first.
What is the Rebbe's opinion on using non-Jewish books for chinuch, for education? And the example the writer writes, like the book called The Nurtured Heart, which is an approach for education. So firstly, I address this pretty directly a number of times, and I will briefly respond, but I want to refer you to these episodes. Just for the record, when I refer to previous episodes, this does not please, do not see this as minimizing the importance of a question, or else I wouldn't even address the question. Questions are vital, but since this is an ongoing program, and for many now for over six years, and I've covered topics. I don't see the important the need to necessarily repeat exactly what was said already. That's why I'm doing the cross-referencing. So whatever I said then, I would say now. So instead of repeating it, and we can co- use the time to cover new topics or address other topics in more depth, that's why I do the cross-referencing. And the ep- episodes that I discussed this topic is in 49, 202, and 203, 221, 223, 232. So I know it may be easier for the listener to just me give you an answer, full answer right now. But you know what? Sometimes we have to put a little work, just as I put work in writing and doing this and preparing for it and so on. And the work is to simply just a few clicks and listen to it there. It's not a lot of work. You don't have to do the research. It's all there. But that's where I did discuss this topic. Briefly speaking, in general, Teira has everything that we need especially when you're dealing with the chinuch of our children and our education. That's what Teda came was given for. That's why Teda Tziva Lano Meshem to give us all the tools necessary for educating our children, including not just the basic knowledge and information, including methodology. For example, teach your child according to his or her way. So even when he, get, he or she gets older, will not waver from it. So we have methodology as well that the Torah. Now sometimes it may take a little work to find it in the Torah. But imreku, if you don't find it, if you, if you come up empty-handed, mikemu, the, the weakness, the, the lack is in us. So we do not need any outside sources for the chinuch altaras hakedish, the holy and sacred education of our holy children and adults as well. There are places where the Torah itself says, for example, it comes to medicine, where the Torah specifically says, giving permission for the healer to heal, for the doctor to heal, which means to go to a doctor who's trained in the, wherever the doctor is trained, in secular schools, in medical school, and so on. So the Torah knows when to designate and when to so-called delegate, I don't say the word delegate probably, but when the Ebeshter gives the power of that element to a doctor. When it comes to matters, however, of education, and matters of direct directives that the Torah gives us, we have the Torah itself. Now that does not mean chachma bagoyim taimen, which means even intel, uh, wisdom exists also in the nations of the world, which means that you can find a lot of wisdom in the secular world. And there are those that do derive some things from there. But do we need it? Are we dependent on it? Not necessarily. Now if there is something that is, has been discovered by researchers or through trial and error or experiences, and someone has learned about it, and it could be helpful, that doesn't mean the Torah doesn't have it. It could then discover, for example, just recently you hear in the last decades, the impact of education of the young children. Once upon a time, children were seen as deaf, blind, and mute psychologically, meaning unshaped. Lately, in the last, when I say lately, I would say the last uh, 70, 80 years, or less, 50, 60 years, that child psychology starts realizing how impactful 
and impressionable a child is. Anyone who's learned Torah always knew that. Some of us may be unaware. Some of us were made aware through this, uh, these, discar- these um, revelations, so to speak, in the, in the secular world. But not dependent on it. It means that sometimes it confirms it. Sometimes it elaborates on it. And there's no question that when you discuss things with educational experts, sometimes you can find, I would say, not content, but ways the world that one is exercises and so on that could be helpful but you have to be wise in knowing when to pick and choose because as I said everything we need exists in the Torah and uh, those that are Hasidish and Yiddish and educators who know how to distinguish will know what things you can pick and choose from other sources that may be helpful in the educational system but that's already going into details, which requires a lot more than the scope of this program. Okay. And this, again, complements what I said back then in those episodes that I just referred to. Here's an interesting question that, um, just to show you the diversity, what can I tell you? Not, I'm not exactly excited about reading it, but uh, I try to cover everything. I'll try to read it in a most modest way. And is, what is, is it appropriate to watch women's wrestling? Hey, Reb Simon Jacobson, your podcasts are inspiring and very informative and entertaining. Thank you for all the work you put into it weeks in, week out, week in, week out. I have a dilemma, which to some Chassidim or Orthodox Jews in general may be something incredibly trivial and not a thing to ponder about too much. I'm a huge fan of professional wrestling. I've been for 21 years now. I've only been from for three years. And each day I grow in my Yiddishkeit and it's a wonderful thing. I have a wife and a daughter. Wrestling has been a big part of my life. I myself wrestled also. I have made many sacrifices since being more and more observant. Wrestling has, been, has just been one that I thought I'd hang on to to keep some color. Now, within the sphere of pro wrestling, there are also women that wrestle. And by pro wrestling, I refer to the entertainment form of wrestling. Fake, if you will, quote-unquote. The women dress in wrestling attire. You see a lot more skin than normal as they are fighting inside a ring. I have never sexualized a woman as I am not a misogynist or a sexist. I've always watched purely for the sport, the art. Shall I assume that from the get-go it is forbidden to watch the women? Thanks. So yes, the short answer is yes. Whether it's wrestling or in other forms, there are laws of modesty. There's laws of how we control our eyes. We should not follow our eyes. And we have to control what our eyes see. That's part of the Aveda of a person. Now, every person has to do this in their, at their own pace. It, you, know, you say 21 years and three years that you've become a shemitah to mitzvahs. So, though I don't want to take away from you any of the pleasures that you've had, but you want to do things in a halachic way. I'm not now getting now into the merit of wrestling itself, whether it's male wrestling or the whole idea of the entertainment of it, the fakeness of it, and so on. That deserves its own discussion, whether it's something in general a person should invest time in. Is it a waste of dvarim betelim, a waste of time? But someone who's been involved in it, you know, you have to choose your battles and always grow accordingly. As you grow, I would like to believe that would be not less necessary for you to watch and enjoy wrestling altogether. But I'm not here to preach to you. But as far as women go, there's clearly additional prohibitions, additional to just the triviality or the the frivolity of, of wrestling in general as a form of entertainment or a form of sport or whatever one calls it. 
So yes, there is definitely clear laws, and I would t- encourage you to just avoid that altogether. And uh, meanwhile, why don't you stick to male wrestling, and then slowly maybe wean yourself off of that as well. But as always, the way the Chassidosh approach to things is not to eliminate something without replacing it with something. Find things that you're excited about and passionate about in Gedusha and Holiness, in learning Chassidus and learning Teda and uh, helping people and volunteering in Mitzrayim campaign, going out and do, helping people, with, inspiring people to do mitzvahs. And if you have a particular inclination in the area of wrestling, you yourself wrestled, so clearly you've learned things from that. Teach others what you've learned from it. Learn lessons in service and serving God that you learn from wrestling technique and from the intrigue that people have when they see people wrestling. The Alter Rebbe, for example, in Te'epedik Chavov of Tanya, the beginning of chapter 26, uses actually wrestling as a moshal, as an example. He says there when he talks about atzvus, when a person feels defeated and feels demoralized, how it undermines the Aved Hashem, and he gives the example of two people wrestling. And when they wrestle, if a person, even if he's strong, and stronger than the other, but if he feels demoralized and feels weak, you can't fight when you feel weak. And there's no question that applies, we learn that from sports, that sometimes you can be the better athlete, and yet, due to your own lack of self-confidence, it affects you. So there you see a muscle of wrestling used in Gedusha. So perhaps you can channel that which you've learned and that which you've experienced towards good matters and teach it and give it as examples and maybe write something about it because you have unique experience that others have not had. That's a perfect example of redeeming and elevating that which you like and turning it into something of some type of holy nature. That's the direction I would encourage you to go in. And uh, as I said, regarding women, it's very clear. It's no different than any type of watching something that uh, there's matters of tzniyas, there's matters of us not seeing women, whether it's whether they're, uh, whether they're more dressed or less dressed, but the bottom line is even if a woman is dressed up completely, it's not something for a Torah person, a to be watching. Okay. Um, next question. If God has no physical form, what does it mean that the Torah, which has physical form, was given to us by God? So let me read the question. Rabbi Jacobson Thank you, for cre- thank you for creating this series of classes in which you have created a platform to address and discuss concepts in an honest and intelligent way. With this in mind, I would like to ask the following question. We know that one of the principles of faith is that Teda is from heaven. Another one of the principles is that God has no body, right? no corporeal body. My question is, if God has no body and no physical form, what does it mean that the Teda, which has physical form, was given to us by God? Does it mean that Moshe received the Torah via divine inspiration? How else are we to understand this? Along the same lines, what does it mean that at Mount Sinai we heard the voice of God and that the tablets were carved by God? I look forward to hearing your insights. Thank you. Okay, so as I said, this forum, this program, we try to cover all questions, questions of all sorts. This question, I have a few questions about the question, but I'm not going to go into that because the question really is, is not about Teda in general. You could say God also created the world and the world is a physical world. How does a non-physical God create a physical world? So I assume you're saying since the world is not, however, the world is not necessarily an expression of the divine wisdom and the divine will, so you're saying that since God is beyond physical, how could God's tater manifest in the physical? 
So the Alter Rebbe already addresses this in Tanya, the early parts of Tanya, where he speaks how the Teda is nishtalshala. The Teda begins as being God's wisdom and God's will. And nishtalshala, and it evolved world by world and, man, and clothed itself level by level until it finally manifested itself in a physical form in this, in this world. In a language, first of all, in Seres Hadibras that Hashem communicated during Matan Teda, and then the entire Teda, which was written down in a physical form, the Sefer Teda today, the first Sefer Teda, the Torah scrolls were written by Moshe. So we're talking about a very spiritual and even beyond spiritual entity, Shashuim Lefonov, God's delights, that ultimately evolved into a form that we can manifest. And the reason for that is very straightforward. The whole purpose of existence and the purpose of Teda is for, to transform this world, to be a blueprint the mandate of God, the divine mandate of how to live our lives. Now, if we come into this world, meaning us souls come into this physical world, and we have a book that we're unable to read and we're unable to access because it remains in a very sublime, spiritual, abstract level, defeats the purpose. So when Moshe was taken on Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, the angel said to God, why are you giving the Teda, the Chem de Gnuza, this precious treasure? Why are you giving it to the lowly, inferior human beings? Give it to us. Spiritual entities, and God turns to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu and says, respond to them. Long story short, Moshe Rabbeinu responds, look into the Teda, what does it say? I'm the God that took you out of Egypt. He turned to the angel, were you ever in Egypt? It says, do not steal, do you have any inclination to steal? It says, honor your parents, do you have parents? So in other words, the Teda speaks in a language that relates to existence. Teda is not in heaven but on earth. So how does that consist with the fact that the Teda originates in the most spiritual, higher spiritual levels? The answer is, as I said, it evolved from level to level. It evolved, Teda Secha Shalimaditonu, as the Rizal says, Teda Secha, your Teda, as it's on the higher levels, that you taught to the lower levels. The Teda of Atzilis comes into the world of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya. Or in the language of Chazal, The Teda speaks in the language of the human being. The Teda originates, Teda truth is as the Rameh and the Shalom and others write. Teda truly talks about things higher, supernal matters. And it alludes to things below. But when it speaks, when the language, the Teda, as we relate to it, it speaks in the very language. There was Adam and Chav and Gan Eden and the, before that the creation and then come all the generations and things that actual narratives and events that happen in this world. But its original form is a completely spiritual state and beyond spiritual. The Teda precedes existence. And there it's a completely sublime level. Then it evolves in a language that we can relate to because it's meant to be a blueprint for us to live our lives in this world. So it's not a question how God can do that. Because the same God also created a physical existence and therefore created a Teda that relates to this physical existence. A step further, when you would say that Hashem, you say Hashem, the voice of God, or you say God gets angry, or you say the eyes of God, you say the, 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 the different expressions that seem to be referring to God, even though we know God has no image, doesn't have any image, and yet God manifested himself in the image, that's why he said he created a human being in the divine image. A long discussion, how is that possible? So the answer is the divine itself, atmos, or higher than uh, Atzilus, higher than Adam, Elion, Elokust, Taka does not have any form or shape. 
but then he manifested a part of godliness, manifested itself in a form and shape that in which he created the divine image, and that divine image in which he created the human being. So when we talk about the ten spheres, Kabbalah talks about the ten spheres of being divine faculties. The Rambam says, God is one with his knowledge and with the knowing and the knower and all that is one. The Maral comes and says, well, God is beyond knowledge. Comes Kabbalah, the Arizal, and the Alter Rebbe right in the beginning of Tanya chapter 2, and he says, Yitzhiva Milsi says, you can reconcile because you took higher than Atzillus, higher than Atzillus, in Eirein Sof, it's like the Maral. It doesn't yet have any shape and form. But then God manifested after the Tzimtzum in a structure called the Ten Spheres, which from there evolved the Ten Faculties and of the human being. So therefore, the idea of physicality is clearly beyond, God is beyond anything physical, and um, beyond anything spiritual for that matter as well, and manifested himself in these levels, including manifesting the Teda. Now, of course, Teda has its own particular journey, because the Teda has to come down in a language that we can discuss, and we can learn, and we can derive halachas from, that address the issues of this world. So there's Primis Teda, and there's Nigla the Teda, as the Alter Rebbe explains, more of the details around that. Okay. Let us now go to part two of vaccination. What does the Rebbe say about vaccination in part two? So I've got plenty of comments just from last week's uh, program. Even though I made it very clear, it was only part one, and by no means was conclusions or so on. Um, which is fine, I'm fine hearing questions, but it's important to emphasize that, that you have to finish a subject before you uh, either rebut or agree or don't agree. Let me just say one short introduction before I continue, uh, which addresses many of the questions that I received. Our goal in this program, and goal in general as Chassidim, is to understand the Rebbe's approach to something. It's not just whether we're going to read a letter from the Rebbe and say, does that letter apply now? We all know that letters are written to individuals under certain circumstances and certain periods of time. And therefore, we have to always qualify and say, is that letter referred to my situation now and in this period of time? That's a given, as I've mentioned a number of times. But that does not mean that we cannot derive from, uh, from, there, from letters of the Rebbe a, a methodology, a perspective, an approach. The Rebbe said clearly about the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe at Alzbavont. The Rebbe has anticipated everything, and if you dig deep enough, sometimes you don't have to dig that deep, you find answers from the Rebbe on any given situation. So there's a challenge today in 2019, 25 years after Gimel Thomas, 27 years after Chavzai Nader, there's no question that there's an answer to be found in the Rebbe's words. Sometimes the answer is direct, immediate. Sometimes you have to dig deeper. Sometimes you have to derive it and apply it. Like Tata itself works that way. There are things that are black and white. The Tata says something right and wrong. Then there's the whole Yud Gimel Midrash Tata and the Bam. There are 13 different methodologies of how we derive from the Tata. The Rebbe gave us also a method, a perspective, an approach to things. So my objective, why I was doing exactly what I was doing last week, and I'm going to continue now, is not just reading letters and say, okay, we have a letter, here we have an answer. The letters were meant, because this is controversial, I wanted to not just give you my final conclusion of what I derived from it all, I wanted to actually go learn it like halacha imtaymeha, to learn the halacha, the, 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 the final conclusion, with its reasons. So we can together study the Rebbe's method, that how we derive a method that we can then apply to all situations, including situations of vaccination and other 
things that come up. And this is really a rule across the board, which is essentially the whole essence of my life to this applied, is sometimes you find a direct answer, very clear. We talked about German products, we have found an answer. Sometimes, however, the answer is not so direct, but you can take out a methodology. The Rebbe has hundreds and hundreds and thousands of letters and answers and fabrengens and teachings we can take our methodology and apply them. Now, you could have two people say, listen, uh, this methodology, I think the conclusion is one way, maybe different than you, but fine, but then at least it's grounded in the Rebbe's approach. So that's the key thing now, and that's what I want to continue doing. So I read some questions, I read some answers, I'm going to, from the Rebbe, that is, I'm going to read some more questions and continue with the Rebbe's answers, because the goal, again, is to take all these answers and say, what can we derive from them? What do we know for sure? What is not so clear? What is unique to the situation that I ever wrote about? What can we extrapolate from and apply to different situations? And there's no question, we've already covered some things that we can do that, and there'll be more. So that's, let's go and do that. That's what I wanted to emphasize. So I'm not going to review what I did last week. Any of you have not heard it, you can go back to last week's episode 269, where I discussed it. What I'm going to do now is um, continue with a few more answers of the Rebbe. Then I'm going to go to some questions that you've asked in the past and some follow-up questions that came in this past week and reply based on once we've established the Rebbe's general approach. Okay. So last week I read a bunch of letters from the Rebbe which clearly indicate, they're mostly from the years uh, 1955, 56, the years mostly referring to the vaccinations that then were emerging it was the first vaccinations, polio, measles, and so on. And uh, the Rebbe was responding to those uh, matters. So I read a bunch of letters. Which essentially, just to sum up, was encouraging people to follow it. And take the vaccinations. And not to separate themselves from everybody else. Which is a methodology, by the way, because that can be applied to many situations. And obviously, to do it in a responsible way, to find the laboratories that have clearly done their due diligence and their research. So let me read a few more letters in that spirit and, um, and a few more answers that I've seen and received. And then I'm going to go and say, what do we derive from it? And then go back to some of your questions. Okay. The Rebbe also, I should mention, made a distinction between the early stage of vaccinations before it was completely tested, and once it's been tested and become applied, and that the consensus among doctors is that it's something to be used. That's also a key point to make. So here's another letter from Igris, volume 12, page 219. That which you write regarding the Salk vaccine, in general, I lean toward using it. However, one should not separate oneself from the community, and if... As it appears from your letter, they use it in Chicago. It is good for you to do so as well. Another letter. That's uh, dated, by the way, 15th of Tevis, Tavshin Tes Zion. So that's the 15th of Tevis, approximately 1955. 13th of year, 5717, which would be 1957. Igres, volume 14, page 426. That which you write regarding vaccination... In this country, it became the custom to give it to all children. 
However, before doing so, it is necessary to verify the manufacturer of the vaccination, i.e. from which factory it is, and whether it is tried and tested. So again, you clearly see both sides of the points that the Rebbe is making. And to be balanced, you cannot just take one half and not the other half. I know some people just focus on the second half. You see, if it's not tried and tested, but the Rebbe is saying at the same time, they give it to all children, which means the Rebbe accepts that it is tried and tested. However, wherever you are in the world, you want to make sure it's coming from a laboratory that has been tried and tested, because that, just because a vaccine is tried and tested in one part of the world, like in the United States, or in some parts of the United States, doesn't mean that it's been tried and tested elsewhere. So you want to make sure that that's covered, because if not, you're talking about a vaccine that's not been tested, or something new on the market, which has its own issues, which we'll talk about more in a moment. On the 24th of Cheshvan, 5717, again, this is approximately 1956. Igres, volume 14, page 107-108. In reply to your letter, in which you ask whether it is only permissible for a doctor to heal someone and use medications after a person is ill, or whether it is permissible to use those medications that prevent illness, e.g. inoculating against disease, and other forms of preventive medicine. Preventive medicine has been employed by distinguished Jewish greats and leaders on a regular basis. See also chapter 4 of Rambam Hilchas Deus. Moreover, there is an explicit verse, no illness shall before you, for I am God your healer. Which is to say that preventive medicine is also a legitimate form of healing. Okay, I bring that because obviously that is also a legitimate form, and this does not mean, however, that the Rebbe is going to negate inoculation and vaccines when necessary, just for the record. How to act regarding the composition of sulk? It's part of the continuation of that letter. Again, the, the polio vaccine. They also are starting out to inject children with it. It became a practice for quite a few months and is also refers, it also refers to, to, uh, to most Haredi circles, i.e. there's no question of kashrus, etc., etc., but it is understood that it must be assured that the compound must be from a laboratory that is good and reliable. Again, the similar point meant before. Okay, now I want to read two more, a few more notes, and then I'll tell you the conclusions that we derive from this. One is about antibiotics. This is from a letter in Igris Kedish, volume, actually 19, page 104. You conclude your letter writing about your son, Shiyichia, that he has received and continues to receive antibiotics on a daily basis. You're surely aware that in the United States, the enthusiasm and ardor to give antibiotics has dampened, and doctors are beginning to have serious reservations about the excessive use. You understand, of course, that this is only a general observation and is meant merely to encourage and point out to you that it would be worthwhile to speak to the doctor who is caring for your son, that he carefully, carefully consider and rethink whether it is sensible to continue prescribing the antibiotics on a daily basis. It would be particularly beneficial for you to encourage him to check this out specifically with those who have been actively researching this matter since, by and large, practicing doctors do not have too much time for research. This is particularly so since the drug companies that manufacture these antibiotics are not at all interested in such research as can readily be understood. Okay, now I just want to make very clear. First of all, this is referring to antibiotics, not vaccination. And even with vaccination, we're not finding here some type of blanket thing to just over-vaccinate. We're talking about specific guidelines from doctors with discretion. And as a parent, you're entitled, obviously, to question, to even challenge, to go to another doctor, but not to become a doctor yourself. 
That's the key things we derive from this. But before I conclude with some of the points in this matter, let me just speak more things, because many of these letters you can say, they're all back then, what about recently? So there's a note from the Rebbe, which again goes back, it seems to be early, but it's a very strong note. The Rebbe writes, this is actually a Ksaviat Kedush, so it's in the Rebbe's handwriting. I don't have an exact date, but it seems to me also in the 50s. The Rebbe writes, he's clearly writing, I guess, to the secretary to add in a letter, to add a footnote. And the Rebbe's, this is the Rebbe writing, by Negeila vaccination, the Rebbe spells out vaccination. So the Rebbe says, Be'ezus Hashem is Baruch, Ein mokim lichshish, Ve'en sarich lifresh min atzibur, Ula'aseisuk be'ez she'asuo harev she'bekita ha'masemes, Ve'yihiyeh la'atzlochem. I'll translate. With God's help, there's no reason to be afraid, and there's no reason to separate yourself from the tzibur, from the community, and to do as it's being done by the majority in the, in the kita, in the class, in, your, in, the, 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 in the appropriate class, meaning in the class of the student. And it should be for success. It's pretty straightforward when talking about students in a class. Then, one thing I, I saw in a letter from Tovshin Memvov, actually. It's a letter about a different topic altogether, how education is the best preventive medicine. So as an aside, the Rebbe says, for preventive medicine to be most successful and effective, it is necessary to start it from earliest childhood, beginning with vaccination, brushing one's teeth to prevent cavities, a balanced diet, and so forth. In regard to Jewish children, it calls for strict observance of laws of kashus, of foods and beverages, and goes on. Here the Rebbe says it nonchalantly, just as brushing teeth. And this is a letter dated... The 15th of Tammuz, Tovshin Mem Vov, 5746, which is basically 1986. Right, 1986. So what we derive from all of this is the following. As I mentioned at the outset, can you take this and apply it to every vaccine situation? No, you cannot. But you definitely can apply principles. Principle number one, listen to doctors. You want to get more than one opinion? Get two opinions. You want three opinions and listen to the two out of the three? By all means. Don't start digging and looking for some doctors after talking to 100 doctors or five doctors or two doctors, a doctor just to confirm your own views. So the first thing is to listen to doctors. You have questions about a vaccine because was it researched properly? Why don't you ask the doctor? Why don't you look around? Is it true that things can be abused? Of course things can be abused. Forget about vaccine. Plain medications. And other things. We know the pharmaceutical industry is invested in its own success. That's why you're entitled to question and challenge. But to become a zealot and go to the extreme that I'm going to become my own doctor or I'm going to choose a certain select doctor that goes against the consensus. So the Rebbe makes directives here, which apply to every type of vaccine. A new vaccine, something new that has not been tested. So I heard a story, 1992 that there was in a certain city a breakout of some meningitis, God forbid, a few people. The city called for vac- a vaccine. It was a new vaccine. And the shliach in the city asked the Rebbe what to do. It was a city with a lot of Jews in it. And the Rebbe responded, aren't there great rabbis in your city? So he went to the rabbis. The rabbis looked into it. They saw, number one, it was only a risk in a certain area and it wasn't like an epidemic. And the vaccine was, was new. 
So it wasn't fully tested. So they came out that we don't, don't, they don't do the vaccine. The next year, there was another breakout. This was already afternoon base after Chavzai Nodr. But the Rebbe already answered. So he went back to these rabbis. They looked into it again. And now the vaccine was tested. And it became a little more spread, more, more sakana. So they said the children should take the vaccine. So that's a perfect example. The Rebbe said to go to Rabbonim. Rabbonim looked into it. Vaccine wasn't tested. It's one thing. But once it's tested, and once there's others are taking it, and doctors are prescribing it, so fine. You ask the doctors. You challenge the doctors. We're talking about if a vaccine has been established as being used, and the consensus among the medical industry, meaning the medicine doctors, and doctors that you trust, you did the mumchim, and not one, more than one, many, is to take it, to take the vaccine. If you suddenly see a doctor prescribing vaccine after vaccine, vaccine, new vaccines, if it's a new vaccine, it should be waited till it's tested properly. And every doctor, any healthy doctor is going to tell you that. If, God forbid, it's a rare disease and this is a test type of medicine, that's a whole other discussion which I don't want to go into even. So if it's a new vaccine, it should definitely be tested and, and should be waited. Now, if a particular child is allergic to a vaccine, so well, of course, what's the question? Allergic to a vaccine, doctors will look into it and see what can we do as an alternative. So if we go with a more balanced approach and take the Rebbe's methodology, general methodology, many, many of the questions would be diffused. The first thing is, let's get the egos out of the way. Let's get personal interests out of the way. Let's get preconceived notions out of the way on, on all levels. And the Rebbe, as a Rebbe, is giving directives here. The Rebbe is not a doctor. He's not claiming to be a doctor, but he's telling us how to approach it. The Al-Tifrish is a rule. It's not a rule just in, this, in the salt vaccine. It's a rule in general in halacha. And the Rebbe is applying it in these situations. That means that vaccines, if they're being done and the class is taking it, then every student should be asked to take it. I'm not getting into if you ask the Rebbe, should you throw out a child that doesn't take? The Rebbe would say, he'd answer, take the vaccine. So you don't have to throw out a child. So we don't have to go ahead and such take draconian, draconian, draconian measures. So that is the overall perspective that comes out from all these answers. And I think if somebody has a disagreement with any point I made, I'd like to hear what you disagree with and what the sources are. I read the letter about antibiotics intentionally, not to undermine the other letters, obviously, the Rebbe would not contradict himself, to make it clear, excess and antibiotics may be excessive. But the Rebbe doesn't say no antibiotics, period. He's not coming out as a crusade against it either. Now, I understand the emotions of a parent who has seen a child been hurt, and they attribute perhaps to some antibiotics or to other vaccines or other things. So first of all, I don't know if it's been established medically and independently. And we know some of the hoaxes that have become exposed that are not correct with autism's relationship with vaccines. The fact that some people hold on to it. Look, that's why we have doctors and we try to find objective advice. So um, we understand that. That's why it has to be addressed sensitively and compassionately, not in a dogmatic way. And I hope I did that to the best of my ability. With that said, I will read a few more questions and then I'll follow up more of the questions because I've read everything I wanted to read from the Rebbe on the matter, at least that I had available to me. If there's more that you'd like to share with me, please, by all means. So let me just read another question or two due to limits in time on this matter. When I desire to watch one of your episodes, submit a question kept coming... Submit a question kept coming up, so I felt compelled to submit a question. 
My question is concerning vaccines. It has become a highly controversial subject. Many Jewish children have been injured by the practice and parents are joining forces, getting educated on the topic and refusing to submit their children to vaccination. But they are being met with very strong opposition by the administration of the Jewish schools. Even though the state allows exemptions, the schools do not want to accept them. My grandchildren who attend a certain city, Lubavitch Day School, are being pressured to vaccinate or leave the school. There are a few rabbis who have written an exemption letter, and there's a Chabad rabbi who wrote a halachic article titled, What Does Jewish Law Say About Vaccination? by Yehuda Sherpin around 2015. He gives two reasons not to vaccinate. Shav al-Tasa Adif, Talmud Erevin 100a, meaning just status quo, basically, when there are two opposing risks, in some cases of doubt, better to sit and do nothing applies and one shouldn't vaccinate. Two, we cannot, from a purely halachic perspective, compel a healthy person or parent to vaccinate even if his, other, his or her refusal is based on irrational fear. He also gives, this is quoted from Nishmas Avram, Cheshem Mishpat 426b and 427a. He also gives reasons to vaccinate. In my opinion, they are not very halachically compelling reasons, even if it's obvious he leans in that direction. I am satisfied with halacha, but the school does not want to see or read anything. Their response is that being a private school, they can make any policy they want. Upon further research, I found out that vaccines and some other medicines are made from human fetuses. And uh, sends me some, here's a, Jessica Farnworth wrote about this, Farnsworth vaccines, development of vaccines from aborted babies in May 2011. All this information is now easily available on Google. As a Jew, I feel very strongly that it's wrong to make use of such a product. What disturbs me that it's the Jewish institutions that are forcing this practice of vaccination without wanting to look at the ingredients or even the danger. What advice, what advice would you give a parent who's facing the choice of either vaccinating or finding another school? which may not be Jewish. Well, look, you made a case which I don't necessarily agree is an objectively presented case. Many people have looked into this and would not necessarily agree with your statement that you made, which is exactly these words, that um, uh, you made a statement, uh, here we are, uh, uh, many Jewish children have been injured by the practice. You know, many Jewish children have not been injured by the practice so I'm not sure where that number comes from and what are we talking about? Are we talking about an exception of one or two who are allergic we talk, allergic, or something else? We have to talk to doctors and ask them this question. The way the Rebbe approached the issue, even though, yes, he's speaking about certain vaccines, is the same way we should approach every vaccine. I am not a doctor and I'm not going to go into which vaccine, which is not vaccine. If there's a vaccine that's questionable, even due to the, due to the fact that it's ingredients or where it's derived from, that should be looked at, as I said, as the Rebbe said, look into the laboratory and so on. But I don't think we should take the, the law in our own hands and the halachas in our own hands. We need to look into it with doctors and be ready to hear what they say and what the consensus say. And Al-Tifrish Minat Sibur is a directive from the Rebbe regarding this issue. And that you don't make any mention of. So I wonder what well, your own objectivity. I'm not questioning your intentions. I'm sure you want to protect your children, but as I said earlier, if we want to have the full picture, we need to look at all angles of it and then come to a determination. As far as what you should do, that's what I suggest you should do. Not about fighting the schools or not fighting the schools or taking them out of school. Why not first figure out what should be done? And why don't we talk specifics? What vaccination are we addressing? What, what are the details? What do the doctors say? What is the child? What are the risks involved? 
and then we can talk instead of blanket general generic statements. Either way, are not very helpful. Okay, as I said, I'll address more of this. There are more questions and follow-ups, but I will reserve that for the next program due to time limitations. Okay, now there's a bunch of follow-up, which I see time has now limited me from doing the follow-up. I'll just do one. I'll do two, actually. There was one about parental alienation. I will reserve that next week because it deserves more time. It's a longer answer. One was about illegal immigration in last week's episode, 269. Illegal immigration. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in your latest episode, 269, you discussed immigration and possibly blurred the lines between immigration and illegal immigration, invasion. The two writers whose letters you read discussed illegal immigration. I think everyone agrees that legal immigration is a benefit to society, and the questions are who, how many, etc. The USA is a Medina Shal Chesed, a, uh, yes, a uh, nation of, uh, of kindness and generous nation, and accepts millions of legal immigrants, and the question of how, who, and how many do, do, how many do need to be legislated. The primary issue being discussed by the writers and in current politics is dealing with illegal immigration invaders. Blurring the lines muddles, muddles the water and doesn't help the topic with blessings. Frankly, I don't know if you listened to what I said, but I, actually I addressed that directly. And I addressed that immigration has always been part of any healthy com- country, and the Jews have benefited from it. So that clearly is legal, legal, legal immigration. But thank you for clarifying that, at least for the listeners. And with that, we one more follow-up. Yem Hilula. Hi, Rabbi. I enjoy your podcasts a lot. However, I found that your last response in episode 268 to why you mentioned, why you didn't mention Yem Hilula for Gimel Thomas as extremely confusing and evasive. There's enough confusion in the world, and I find it highly confusing, so that answer, that answers just made things so much worse. I see yourself as something, something highly regarded and influential, and by beating around the bush came across as very wishy-washy and not wanting to address the point accordingly. Hope you can deal with this and clear the confusion. I basically shared my discomfort with the word, and I don't understand why that's a problem, why a human being cannot have a, 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 a challenge with a word like that, because Gimel Thomas is a challenging day. So I'm not sure why that's confusing. It's just a personal sentiment. And if you could spell it out more specifically, I'll be happy to address it. Okay. Let us now go to the Chassidus question. Apropos to this period in time, the nine days, the three weeks and the nine days, so here's a topic that was addressed, but I thought it was fitting as Chassidus of this period in time. Tzimtzum Kipshutei. Tzimtzum Kipshutei. Dear Rabbi, I'm, I'm not claiming to know exactly what Tzimtzum Loi Kipshutei means. I'll explain what that is in a moment. But can you explain what Tzimtzum Kipshutei is and how can, why would someone believe in it? So we all know the doctrine of Tzimtzum, Seydat Tzimtzum of the Arizal and where he was Mechadish, based obviously on Kabbalah before him, the concept that in creating existence, God concealed his presence entirely. The language he uses, Tzimtzum Bederech, Silik, Silik, Atzmei Minatzad, he literally removed himself to the side, left a space, obviously this is all conceptually, in order for an independent consciousness and existence to emerge. That's the language in Eitz Chaim. So there was a machlekes, a disagreement among the students of the, of the Rizal. One is the Mishnah's Chassidim in his classic book, Yesh Levov, Emmanuel Chayreki, who writes, Simpson Kipshutei. 
that silik means he actually removed himself. There were others who completely negated that approach for many different reasons, including the Shemir Amunim and others. And of course, the Al Tareb in chapter 7, Shayyichid Amuna, says those that made the mistake, those Gudelim that made the mistake in, in applying a physical type of attribution to God that he removed himself. That symptom is not Kipshute. When the Arizal says removed himself, he means conceptually concealed himself, not removed himself. And there's a long discussion on what's the difference between the two. And I discussed it in episodes 40, 93 through 95, 98, 106, and 107. Briefly, the difference of opinion, as the Rebbe explains, is not, God forbid, that one holds that God is not, exi- not here and one holds that God is here. Everyone believes that God is present. The question is, how much does God associate with existence? In the words of, of Chaireki, in the words of the Yeshua Lavov, that God is mashgiach, like, like, like a king looking through a bathroom window. Since you cannot attribute and God associate God with the scum of the earth, so to speak, with the lowly places, with the things that are not just neutral, that are profane and so on, so you can't say God exists within them, God is observing them. His hashgacha is there, he's watching it, but in some ways God is removed from that particular entity. In other words, to use other terms, God's relationship with that is through the negation of it. That God is by, God's, by God not being directly connected. Like, for example, we understand Shalosh Klip Satmeis and Gedusha. That holiness is a keli, bittel. Something that's bottle is a keli. Everything that Gedusha is bottle, meaning it's, it's uh, completely nullified in the presence of God. That's why it channels godliness. Arrogance defies godliness. That doesn't mean God is not there. It means that godliness doesn't associate with it. So on Shal Shlipsatmeis, we say you cannot go there. There's of course a divine spark there, but the divine spark has become darkened like a black hole. So it's off limits. Osr So you'd say those that hold Simsikup should they hold like we think about Shal Shlipsatmeis, the entire world, because it's a profane, mundane, inferior world. So the physicality of this universe is inferior. So God's presence is not in direct association. He directly associates with Kedusha. But with anything that's not holiness, that's profane, that's part of the lowliness of this world, its association is more through the negation of it, through not, not through yes. And the Rebbe explains that this actually comes from understanding the greatness of God. That's why the Rebbe says, Simpson Kapshute actually makes more sense in a certain way. Why? The Rebbe said that at the meal. Why? Because they came to it to conclusion because of greatness of God, God does not associate with lowly things. And that can make a lot of sense. But since the Alter Rebbe received from his Rabbeim that that's not the case, that God does associate, obviously through tzimtzum and concealments, it doesn't mean God associates with lowliness. It means that there is a way of revealing God in a positive way in the lowly world. Thus, he explains, Simpson Shalei I elaborated on this a lot more back then. Relevant to us is when you look at the three weeks. So you could have two different Jewish approaches to this. It's a very dark time. God concealed his presence. And in many ways, God is not here with us. Yes, of course, his hashgach is here with us. And in some ways, his presence is here with us. As the Rebbe explains, Shabbos Chazayin Tov Shimem. Monks at Sikh at the end of the Fabrengen. Fabrengen went till 8 o'clock. I had the schus to write that Fabrengen. 
long, long fabreng and a hanach of, I think, over 90 pages. So the other Rebbe says, either the hashgach is here, or the, or the, look in the sikh and you'll see the different details. I don't want to go through all the, the nuances now. So, so, so you can say the three weeks is a time where we are, our relationship with God is by avoiding simchas and avoiding, so in other words, there's certain credence to the negativity. Or, that no, that within it all, really, the simchas is not kipshute. The concealment is not literal, it's only a concealment. And we can actually reveal the divine if we work at it through Pchudi Hashem Yishar Misam by doing things on Piyalacha that you're supposed to do. So in other words, there's no real concept of original evil or that something is so dark we cannot reveal. Obviously with discretion and the way the Torah says and certain things have to be avoided, but in it somewhere there is a light that we can ultimately reveal and transform it into Gedushin. So that's the relevance to our time. Let's now do the essays, three essays, 2019 essay contest. So essay number one in Hebrew, Bayat Hait Makruk Beria Chabadit. The problem of addiction through the through the perspective of Chabad, Chabad perspective. Bishterni Cohen H16 Kiryat Malachi Israel. Okay, so this again from the top essays, the top 30, top 40 essays. And, um, and addresses that, uh, that we live in a time, in one of the most um, turbulent times in history, especially regarding the issue of this global village where we see so much around addictions and other challenges of that nature. How much technology has affected and influenced different types of addictions, television mobile phones, and so on. And in this essay, she addresses exactly this topic. Internet addiction, as well as especially internet addiction. Three particular forms of addiction in the internet. And, um, and how Chassidus provides us with a response of how to deal with it namely through self-control, but goes on to speak about in a very detailed way of actual tools and exercises that everybody can apply, which of course is extremely relevant to this one of the big plagues of our time. And ultimately, individual responsibility and individual empowerment. Very well done, Osei, and of course about an extremely relevant topic. You can see, find this essay at chassidusapply.com as well as the other essays as we post them, as well if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, we send out the new, newsletter, new essays as they're posted. The next essay is Adgar Abkhira, The Challenge of Free Will, Chaim Zaklis, age 36, Elad Israel. And um, in a short but powerful essay, talks about how, again, about the universe today and the world in which we live how free will is looked at through psychological eyes, and how free will is looked at through Judaism, and how free will is looked at through Chassidus. So it's a comparative study of, of that concept of free will with, uh, with a very powerful conclusion of how each of us can learn from it and how each of us can be more empowered in our choices that we make in our lives. Okay, another well done essay. And finally, the third essay for this week is Perfecting Failure, that one was also in Hebrew. 
This one is in English. Perfecting failure. Tsaporalea Greenberg, age 18, Hallandale Beach, Florida. I should mention um, the ages. Sterney Cohen was age 16. I mentioned that. Uh, Chaim Zaklis was age 36. Sterney Cohen was a student in Tichon, Beis Chana, Kiryat Malachi. In, uh, yeah, in the school there, Beis Chana. Um, Chaim Zaklis is a mashpia and he worked with Yeshiva Temchet Mimim in Elad. And Sapporo Greenberg in Hollandale Beach is a student at high school student in Beis Yaakov, Miami. So perfecting failure. Perfecting failure. Have you ever confronted circumstances in life where you feel you're just not good enough? How should we interpret and react to failures and shortcomings? Does God want us to beat ourselves up over them? Call it quits. Goes on to speak about the psychologist Carol Dweck, publishing Mindset. Talk about the different types of mindsets, growth mindset and other mindsets. That, um, and then goes on to explain how that is applied and how Chassidus and Taylor looks at this. So there's uh, the good comparison. And the to- is Torah growth-oriented? And the spiritual fixed mindset re- remedy. The soul is not bound by a set ability. The struggle, result of spiritual deficiency. Focusing inward, how do we grow? Not, it's not about me. Identity crisis, avoiding complacency. Examine your past and grow. And concluding with a beautiful story and parable which I'll let you read on your own. Okay, well done as well. And with that, we conclude the essays of this week. And we conclude this episode 270. May it be that we should do our part in remedying and removing all the forces that have brought this dark period, the three weeks and the nine days, especially through unconditional Avis Yisrael. And should be Tevim. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. So everyone have a very blessed week. It should be a good Chedish Menachemov. I'm Chedish of true Menachem, the Choma of the Gula, Amitis Vashlema. Thank you very much.